0: Good evening and welcome to today's podcast from Claysmore English Department on John Keats's poem The Ode on Melancholy. To make the best use of this podcast you probably need to have the poem in front of you. The poem was written in May or June 1819 and is what we call one of Keats's great odes. What is melancholy first of all? Well for us today the the simplest comparison would be with depression. That uh, in Keats's time melancholy was a medical term as well as a general term which implied a state of anguish or unhappiness or sorrow or a sort of weariness with life an inability really to go on a a lack of energy a listlessness and Keats here writes a poem to that state of mind. Before we begin it might be worth pointing out that originally the poem in its earliest version had four stanzas and Keats deleted the first stanza And that stanza gives a sense that uh, perhaps the tone of the whole is satirical in some way, that he's having fun with the idea of melancholy and the poet dedicated to it. It might also need to be read following Coleridge's poem about dejection. And very cleverly in that ode, Coleridge explains how his dejection becomes the source of his poetic inspiration. Keats seems to me, as so often, to take things a little step further. So, the first stanza... No, no, go not to Lethe. Neither twist wolfsbane, tight rooted for its poisonous wine. Well, what's he on about? He seems to be talking to somebody and telling them not to go to Hades, not to lose themselves in the river of forgetfulness, uh, not twist wolfsbane, which uh, he's really saying, don't commit suicide, don't poison yourself, or or neither suffer thy pale forehead to be kissed by nightshade deadly nightshade the sort of poisonous plant and also make not your rosary of yewberries, nor let the beetle nor the death moth be your mournful psyche nor the downy owl a partner in your sorrows mysteries you know don't get miserable because you're feeling melancholic so there's a sort of irony about it that if you are melancholic inevitably you're miserable and keats is saying well don't allow this to become a partner in your sorrows mysteries But notice the three negative statements in the first four words. No, no, go not to Lethe. And this negativity continues with neither, nor suffer. Make not your rosary, nor let the beetle, nor the downy owl. Constant negatives. And there's a really forceful energy to what he's saying. Because although uh, to some extent the ode has grown out of his sonnets, And so it has a kind of sonnet rhyme scheme, A, B, A, B, C, D, E, C, D, E. Actually, the rhythm is not at all iambic, certainly not at the beginning. No, no, go not to Lethe. Um, There's a whole series of stressed syllables all in a row, spondees we call them, um, which conveys the passion and the energy of the speaker. Well, who is the speaker and who is he speaking to? Well, In a sense, this poem is often read as though it were Keats, though one must be very careful because Keats withdraws himself from the poems. And possibly it's the speaker speaking to himself. There's not necessarily an external person. He's trying to persuade himself that melancholy is not something to be given into. And the reason for not giving into it comes at the very end of the first stanza, the final line. If you give in to melancholy, then you drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. It's a stunning phrase that in a state of melancholy, yes, the soul is anguished, but out of that anguish comes a wakefulness, um, a heightened sensitivity, a sharper sense of perception because of the suffering that's taking place. We don't often associate that condition with what we call depression, but we would associate it with what we would say as a nervous breakdown. The utter pain and suffering of everyday life becomes acute for the person in that condition. And that's comparable, really, to what Keats is saying here about melancholy. Keats, however, is um, not going to dwell on that. He's going to offer a solution. And what does he say in the second stanza? Well, notice that that the turn, the volta of, of a sonnet, comes at the beginning of the second stanza here. But, but when the melancholy fit shall fall... Sudden from heaven, like a weeping cloud, and in this second stanza, there's a mar- there's a marvellous um, paradoxical image. He compares melancholy to being like the cloud that suddenly surrounds the green hill in April when the showers come, and that cloud conceals the beauty of the landscape in a shroud. And melancholy, therefore, is already associated linguistically in the poem with death, that in some sense the good things of life, the joys of life, are surrounded when you're depressed or when you're melancholic by a shroud. And Keats's response to this is uh, one of passionate engagement with a problem. Don't give in to it, he says, but glut thy sorrow on a morning rose. Or on the rainbow of the salt sand wave, or on the wealth of globed peonies, or if thy mistress some rich anger shows, imprison her soft hand and let her rave. So, um, however you're feeling, then Keats gives us many options, and the polysyndeton, the repetitive conjunctions, or 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 or, convey the energy that he feels about this material, and the answer, the the, fi- the final line. Is a characteristic line of Keats, really, where we get this mixing of sensations and the senses. Let her rave and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eyes. Feed this image of taste and uh, this very physical image uh, about the mistress's eyes. In the third stanza, Keats explains why melancholy is worth bothering about, why it's not something to give into, and while it's a, it's actually a benefit. To people to suffer from melancholy. Because, as he explains, she dwells with beauty and joy and aching pleasure. So wherever you find beauty or wherever you find joy or wherever you find pleasure, you are going to find melancholy as well. A sorrow, a sadness, a kind of death is present even in these uh, moments of intense enjoyment. And from line 25 onwards, in a memorable image, Keats explores precisely what he means by this. So in the Temple of Delight, the sort of place where one worships pleasure, melancholy has her shrine. One has to imagine a cathedral in which there's a shrine dedicated to melancholy, sadness and sorrow. So in spite of life's joys, Sadness and sorrow are present. And notice in line 26 that the vel- the melancholy is veiled, that it's not easily noticed or seen. Indeed, many people wouldn't notice it or see it. And as Keats explains in line 27, really, the only person who would see it is the one whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. His soul, not anybody else's, but his soul... Shall taste the sadness of her might And be among her cloudy trophies hung And of course, um, although we said Keats isn't present in the poem There is a strong sense through the use of the word tongue That he's talking about the poet That it's the poet who sees melancholy Amidst beauty and joy and pleasure And it's the poet who can live life to the full Bursting joy's grape against his palate fine And it's the poet who can, whose soul shall taste the sadness of her might? Of course, uh, that we mustn't necessarily read this poem as a simple assertion of these ideas. There's a sense of irony about what Keats is saying. The self-conscious poet shall taste the sadness of her might. Let's have a quick look at the uh, language of the poem. Uh, we've mentioned the meter and the extraordinary variations in meter that we get throughout the poem but ha- have a quick look at the, the the language let's say of the second stanza the rhyme scheme as we've said seems straightforward a b a b c d e c d e if you just look at the lines you can see four rhymes with all and cloud with shroud rose with shows wave with rave and peonies with eyes a kind of half rhyme but Keats transforms the sounds and the echoes and the rhyme scheme of the stanza through his use of internal rhyme. So in almost every line from 15 to 20, in every line from 15 to 20, we have an internal echo of one sound of another, a, a, a form of assonance. So in line 15 we have sorrow and rose. Then glut thy sorrow on a morning rose. And in the next line... We have rainbow and wave. And in line 17, globed and peonies. Oh, the O oh sound is repeated. In the next line we have mistress and rich. In line 19, hand and and. The echoes direct. And in line 20, feed and deep. And then deep and peerless. The double E sound is re- appears four times in line 20 so um, if you want to talk or write about the rhyme scheme of this particular ode indeed most of keats's odes you're going to need to write not just about the the end rhymes but also about the echoing sounds that run throughout the poetry this becomes even cleverer in the third stanza where where the rhyme scheme changes and it becomes a b a b c d e ...and then DCE... ...there's an interesting inversion of the rhyme there... ...in line 28 and 29... ...compared with the other two stanzas... Uh, ...we need to analyse why that might be the case... Um, ...conventionally in Keats... ...it's argued that he's interested in the onrush of time... ...that the end of the sonnet... ...appears quicker than the poet... ...or the the voice is expecting it to appear... ...and that's symbolised in a way... ...and conveyed to the reader by the early arrival of a rhyme that you're expecting to come later. So that's one thing to look at towards the end of the stanza. But even in the middle of the stanza, and in this third stanza, the rhyme scheme is even cleverer, because um, if we take the end of the third line, nigh, well, there's an echo of that rhyme in delight at the end of line 25, but also the beginning of line 25, we have the word I... So we get an aching pleasure nigh turning to poison while the bee mouth sips I in the very temple of delight. So the A rhyme, nigh, although it doesn't appear again at the end of any line in the rest of the stanza, actually appears at the beginning of line 25. He does something similarly with the E rhyme in line 27 and line 30. So line 27 ends, whose strenuous tongue... And line 30 ends, trophies hung. So far, so good. But actually, line 30 begins, and be among. So the word tongue rhymes with among and hung. And there's a kind of unity that's created, and a unity that follows from this interweaving of sound uh, that is far stronger than simple end rhymes. This rhyme scheme, therefore, and the use of sound within the poem reinforces its meaning so a word about its meaning at university the idea that a poem means anything would be would be laughed at it would be regarded as hilarious but uh, for, for A-level we have to maintain the fiction that the poem might mean something and interestingly with Keats we actually reach the position where it might mean that there isn't much meaning or that if there is a meaning it's very very difficult to grasp and even more difficult to express and Stuart Curran, who is one of the foremost, who is one of the foremost scholars of British Romanticism, suggests that in this ode, uh, we have expressed a union of contradictory opposites. And he comments on the sort of oxymoronic nature, particularly of the third stanza, that it's full of contraries, opposites. He talks about a union of contradictory elements. This union is uh, graphically represented by the binding together of the ideas and the sentences through sound, that it's the sound that holds the piece together as well as the external logic of what he's saying. The poem as a whole uh, reminds us pretty firmly, really, of a letter that Keats wrote in the same month to his brother George and George's wife Georgiana. And in that letter, he says that suffering is really essential for life and that without suffering... An intelligence will remain without identity, that identity, if you wish, is made by suffering. And this is sometimes referred to his um, Veil of soul-making" letter, and it was written on the 21st of April, 1819. And so the circumstances of life are but the touchstones of his heart, and what are touchstones but provings of his heart, and what are provings of his heart but fortifiers or alterers of his nature. And what is his altered nature but his soul? So without the suffering, we remain without identity. With suffering, our identity emerges. And so uh, the Ode on Melancholy tries to bring that idea together and say that um, melancholy is a good thing, it's a necessary thing for our, our identity, and it exists, whether we like it or not, in the presence of beauty and joy and pleasure. Indeed, it's partly what contributes to the sense of transience or evanescence, that the beauty is beautiful because it will die. The joy is joyful because it will end. The pleasure, and in the poem it's a kind of sexual pleasure, is intense because it won't last forever. And the reason it won't last forever is because melancholy is present, veiled, in the background, if you wish. So when we acknowledge a person's beauty, it's partly because we know that beauty will come to an end, that we feel they are beautiful. We hear the same idea in Keats's poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn, where perfection, complete perfection, Keats regards as something untrue and undesirable, because there's no consummation. If there's a consummation, a completion, Of love or sensuality or sensual pleasure, then also there's a, if you like, an anticlimax, a decline, ultimately a death. And on that note, we'd better leave it. You've been listening to the Claysmore English Department's podcast on Keats's poem Ode on Melancholy. I'm James Carpenter. Good night.